report the mistakes. We take a bunch. It's impossible for us to do all of the country. It's impossible for us to stay on top of the reality. We're just giving a an, a little What he was stating, the statement was scary, frightening. I don't know if any other person in Israel ever heard this meant from him. I don't know. Uh, I can't even say for sure it's the same today, but I for this particular product. And it might have been left on the label from a previous uh, run, the uh, the the graph. That could be mistaken. I don't know, but they're assuming that the Rabbanut knows what they give Ashkacha to, and that the other people had made a mistake. In any event, uh, it's it's very very scary. So I told, so she asked me what she should do. So I decided for her, based upon what she told me, she was looking for. I said, listen. something that they can't do. They're relying on somebody in the plant or the Hashkacha or whatever it is. They're not able to be over the whole world in one minute. But they do a decent job in setting up a program which hope uh, protects it most of the time. I said, but there are mistakes. And I rem- and you realize that I just told you that there are many more mistakes than we know because she, he doesn't pull all the products off the shelf. So I told her I wouldn't use it. I tell her no. I felt bad saying no. She said, "Don't worry about it. You know, it's not a big deal. It's worth the product that was born." There's no responsibility. Anybody could tell you anything. I said, "If you were bought in a store that had the rabbanut on the store, so they, they, uh, the rabbanut reports to the mashgichim all the mistakes and the mislabelings." So they have to pull that product and not use it in that store anymore. So there, there's a control factor within the Rabbanut's world. But if you're outside the Rabbanut's world, there shouldn't be any, uh, there shouldn't be any uh, guarantee of kosher. So I told her to skip it. Uh, the time is moving along. I have a whole bunch of things here, but I want to share one more thing with you. The... Um, Maybe we'll go with straight on. We'll go straight on. The next topic. Russia that was done in, on wines uh, where they removed, it's a company called Orhaganuz, and they took off 1,056 gallons of their fine wines because they're trying to take off the, uh, the Trumas and Mises. Now, 
find ways to maybe do smaller amounts. But they, in order, this is what's required. And the winemaker, Rabbi Aaron Ziv, was asked how he feels when he watches such enormous quantities of wine being poured into the gutter after having invested so much effort in producing them. And he said, this is a special donation and tithing event. It is a time of very great joy in a different context, just as the more income tax you pay, the more profit you make. Likewise, the more wine you pour out, the more wine you have made. But he says, what will be poured out is exactly what really belongs to you. Money comes and money goes. But the mitzvah you kept when you poured out the 4,000 liters of wine's donation and tithing, this mitzvah will remain yours forever. Beautiful. When you give tzedakah, it's not like you gave it away. That is your money put away for the future. And that's how the winemaker of Aaron Ziv viewed how he, when he poured out this tremendous amount, um, you know, how, how he viewed it and looked at it in a positive way. The third thing... A 3D... Now, it's not really out yet. Everything, every time I tell people about it, it's always like within the next year, the next three years. It doesn't seem to ever get there. But we are getting closer, and people are getting more money put into it, and they're making more money for it. So it's getting pretty close. There's this fellow by the name of Oded Shoseyov, a professor of plant molecular biology in Hebrew University in Yerushalayim, created a thing called Chef It. The machine is loaded with plant, vegetable, and base ingredients like cellulose, proteins, fats, and seasoning. I hope it comes out tasting good. And outputs a, a vegan patty that is cooked with infrared light. I hope that's safe. The professor and his team began developing the prototype, which can currently print and cook a veggie burger in 10 minutes. He did it in 2013 after receiving an investment of $282,000 from the Israeli Government Food Technology and Innovation Fund. Now he's currently raising $2 million to help him get Chefit, which, uh, which the team is tweaking to reduce out time, output time to three minutes, uh, 10 minutes, into the fast food restaurants to replace the meat burgers. So not only, you know, Will this be um, something that people could do on their own if they could afford the pricing? But also, they can be able to have it in the restaurants and avoid some of the uh, uh, some of the negative aspects of, of uh, red meat. Last week, Israeli-based company Our Farms, which we maybe we've talked about in the past, announced that it developed a 3D platform for clean meat, also known as cultured meat that's grown from a small sample of animal cells in a laboratory setting, which, by the way, is either going to be trace or have to have a shkaka, because uh, the animal cells that start with the original ones need to be kosher. So this is, uh, these two things are coming along, and 
we've talked about it before, but here is the fiesta results, as they say. This is the exciting part of the whole deal. There are a hundred restaurants, and they're part of a company called Burgers Burger Bar, B-U-R-G-U-S, Burgers Burger Bar, B-B-B, it's called. And they partnered with the uh, with Israeli 3D hamburger printing the guy a company called Savor Eat, another one. And they are these. It seems that they have a hundred restaurants, and they're going to be uh, setting up to to uh, to have a machine that prints a, a vegan burger. And it, it's uh, going to be exactly what I told you before. But this is a different company, and BBB has a hundred burger restaurants under three names. One name is BBB, and one is Moses, M-O-Z-E-S, and one is Burgeroom. Remember, this is in Israel. This restaurant group already offers vegan burgers. They're using a company called Beyond Meat. And uh, now they're thinking about doing this thing and working together with this Oded Shosevyov, uh, who, who has this company called Savor Eats. And... Uh, we're going to be seeing this in the future, the question, and how would people be receiving it, whether it's any good or not, I don't know, but a lot of effort is being put into it. And the future will be less red meat and uh, using more technology. That's, it's quite obvious. Whether it will take off completely, I don't know. This leads us to a really interesting piece Something that's going on in St. Louis under Hashkocha, the Vada Ear, giving Hashkocha to this company, HJ's Cafe. Um, it's right next to the Mirowitz Center in the New Covenant Place 2 Khan Family Building. And they have a cafe that is kosher and a cafe that is not kosher. And it's also they are trying to help the seniors by offering them a special menu, a five-dollar menu, each every weekday. So this is uh, the 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 here is that you 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 want to be able to bring the price down, and it seems that by offering these two uh, possibilities, the kosher and the non-kosher. They're able to keep the price down. How it works exactly, you'll listen in a second. Rabbi Binyamin Mazer is the Meshkiach. And if you were to walk into HJ's in a weekday afternoon, you might see this new restaurant that offers items like chili cheese dog as well as kosher tuna milk. Now, some guests who come there, uh, they want to eat milk and meat. And, uh, and they do it. So, but the cafe has two kitchens, and that's what they're doing. And one is being maintained by the Vardier of St. Louis as a dairy, kosher dairy kitchen. And the other is another one that'll give you trace, possible chalav, etc. And they're right there. And somehow, this combination is making it easier for them to make a kosher opportunity. The management. It's a non a nonprofit senior residence called Covenant Place, 
and it's supported by the Jewish Federation of St. Louis. And they're running a kosher and a non-kosher kitchen. I don't know if you how much you see with it. I've talked about it a little bit on the radio. Jewish senior citizen. And even if the Federation is supporting it, they haven't been able to because the people were not used to eating kosher. So if a kosher is limiting. You can't have some of your favorite foods that are not kosher. And you can't have meat and milk. And you can't have milk right after with meat or whatever it is. You really... So uh, you you really can't do what you're used to, and the people won't go there. So they'll choose to go to a trader place or whatever. So in order to get them somewhat in the in the misgeret of a of a, of a of a Jewish place, they do allow them, and sometimes they offer non-kosher foods. So here you have a situation where there's kosher and non-kosher, and uh, it, it's. It, 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 uh, it, the kosher water is really under a proper ashkocha from the Yavada Abundant of uh, St. Louis. The problem also is that St. Louis doesn't have many eating opportunities. The management of Covenant Place uh, chose a two-kitchen model because it, it, it's going to bring the price of the, uh, the kosher much closer to the non-kosher because they have lower food costs, according to the uh, president of the CEO of the organization. We had not seen a fully kosher restaurant other than Cone's Kosher Deli that had significant business and was able to flourish in St. Louis. And part of our model was to keep the food affordable. If we had made it all kosher, the food costs would be higher, and we would have had to pass that on to everybody whether they require kosher food or not. Require kosher food. If they're Jewish, they require it. But this is the way they think. So in the years prior to opening this $34 million facility, the second part of, okay, uh, Dennison started talking with Rabbi Zoraven, who was the executive director of the Vod of St. Louis, about what having a kosher and a non-kosher restaurant would entail. Zoraven said, the kosher certification agency had experience with similar arrangements at a food court at Washington University and at Bush Stadium and the this thing about the food court is the latest in food service. Uh, all of these campuses where even uh, the restaurant, the kosher dining, it's in a food court. A food court is like uh, going to a mall, and there's all these different stores right next to each other, and that's what the food court is. And you have to be very careful because you can get served things from, uh, you pick, might bring plates and food from another place to you, near you. You've got to be careful how you serve the food, what, did, what, what you serve it on, and you've got to be careful that when people come to you that they're not, introducing something not kosher into your food court, into your little little place over there. And obviously it's not a regular sit-down situation. You're taking the food and they're going to sit down in a, in a general area where everybody's eating tray for kosher. So it, it's, it's a little bit mind-boggling, and it takes 
uh, a strong hand to make sure that it's properly maintained. Unfortunately, I personally know of at least one place in Brooklyn, not going to mention details, where I don't believe that they're properly taking care of this uh, situation where the kosher and the non-kosher are in close proximity. And people have to be aware. What do they have to be aware of? Who is giving the In this particular case that I'm thinking about, it's not, they set it up and they have it. Uh, what happens on Shabbos? On Fridays, because it's before Shabbos, the restaurant offers only packaged kosher meals like tuna and egg salad sandwiches alongside the non-kosher menu. And uh, this, is, uh, this is the way it's going to be in the near future where, unfortunately, for many, many people, many seniors, they're going to be in an environment that's mixed environment, and uh, it's going to be a challenge for them. Uh, unfortunately, uh, there isn't enough interest among the masses of the Jews, and they have lived a whole life eating not kosher. And in their last days, they're not uh, ready to switch to become a kosher. But uh, at least as long as we have people like the Vada St. Louis providing a proper hashtagha, at least they will have something to eat. We have a little more time, and I want to start on this. I don't think I'm going to finish it today, but I'll I give you a little bit of information from Rabbi Dovin Lewin. Now, Rabbi Dovin Lewin is not a household name here in the States. He has as a yeshiva. He's a Rosh Koyal of uh, Mostos Yehonasan in the base Madrash of Az Yashir in Ramat Beis Shemesh. And basically, he's giving us a few pointers on traveling. Some of it you're probably all familiar with, and uh, the others are a little bit interesting. Of course, he talks about how you travel, and the first step is, am I having a kosher meal in the plane? I get calls of that nature all the time, and I really can't help, because you have to be uh, either a world traveler, which I'm not, or you have to be a, uh, a, tra- a travel agent who, who has that information at his fingertips about which, uh, which food companies are providing the food for which claims and which hashkafas are on that. They, they will have the answers for you, whether it's, they're right all the time or something else, but they're definitely going to try to be right. Have a chance. You have to speak to the tour the tour agent. I mean, the travel agent. But to know every single airline is impossible. And many times they switch. Many times they pick something up when they're in a certain country, and you'll be very surprised. So even going back and forth from America to Israel to the United States you can't necessarily know what they're going to be having. And, and, any, comp, and, any, and sorry, any airplane that goes to different places is going to pick up foods in different places wherever they are. So you have to really examine the food carefully. As we mentioned a couple of years ago about a gentleman, a good, good, good friend of mine, who was served and who ate trace in the airline. It had uh, an OU on it, but it was false. The OU label was slopped onto something else, which was trace. It was basabacholov. It was trace of meat, basabacholov. It was pig in there, everything you can imagine. A front person never ate trafe in his life, ate trafe in an airline, 
with an OU on it, and uh, it's, you know, it was very, very, very unfortunate. Uh, the company, the airline, gave him a small amount of money. Uh, he never told me how much. I'm assuming it is very, very small. He had a lawyer pursue them. He wanted to make sure that they understood this is not a joke. But they are very, they know all the tricks. And they don't go easily for paying any serious money. And you're not going to go to a, you know, to a, uh, to a court of law and, and spend and, and tens of thousands of dollars fighting an airline. I mean, that they have, they have the money to fight it all the way up to the Supreme Court, you know. So you're not going to really win against them, and they have to just be forced into making some kind of small settlement, at least that it makes them a little bit more concerned for the future. In any event, he discusses about sometimes we need to take along our own food. And he, he says that, you know, uh, even if you're, it looks to you like the meal was served to you by, by reliable ashkocha, you might still be unable to eat it. I remember the time, this is Rabbi Lewin speaking now, of Dublin Lewin. He says, I remember the time decades ago when I was flying back from Israel through Europe. My connecting flight was delayed so much that the airline eventually contracted the flight out to a different second-rate airline to which they successfully transferred my luggage and kosher meal. To this day, I still remember being served my kosher meal, already opened with the flight attendant's apology. I hope you don't mind, sir, but we opened your meal because you wanted to see what the difference is between a regular meal and a kosher one. This really happened. This really happened. And 3,000 miles up in the air... Uh, you know, 30,000 feet, I'm sorry, 30,000 feet up in the air, what's he supposed to do? And where are they going to get another one? They're out. It's over. We hope you don't mind, sir, but we want to just take a little peek and see what kosher is all about. I, now, I know now what I should have said to them. <laughs> There's no difference now. That's what I should have said to them. There's no difference now. <laughs> the kosher, the non-kosher, it's already over. But I just sat there in disbelief as to how they didn't notice the label warning them that it must be opened by the passenger who would not eat it if the seal was already broken. So he suggests taking food along with you, if, if, if it's possible. That's one of his suggestions. Another one about the seals, to make sure that the seals are proper. Discuss a little bit about seals. And uh, he, he mentions, uh, he said, since all the, water, the food is warmed up in the same oven, straight from the kosher, so even if you have a super glot kosher mahadran meal, it really should be considered trait, except that we have the special halacha of two kedavas, shenagudu bezubal two things, metal or in the case plastic, also would touch each other and there wouldn't be a liquid in between, that they would be, would be if there nothing transfers from the inside of the pot to the other inside the other pot, or in this case inside the plastic to the outside of the plastic. But we make two because we may have cracks and because there's moisture that can form between the two. So in order to prevent the problem, to 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 take care of these issues, we make two uh, a double seal and a, a double wrapping. I'm sorry. 
and that is what, you know, the very thin layers, that is what acts as two parts, etc. Then he talks about the coffee and the tea, which I think all of us know about there, and I'm not going to go into it now. And he talks at the end of how to daven on a plane. This we'll just mention briefly over here. There seems to be a great debate about davening with a minion on an airplane. Some seem to take the approach that Philip at Seabor, davening with a minion, overrides Kola Tarakula. Everything knocks out, and you take, you have to daven at Seabor no matter what happens. While others say davening while standing, even alone, is, uh, is, 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 is usher. You can't stand, even alone, on an airplane. It's not proper. You're not, not a kavana. Uh, you're, you're in the way. You're not a kavana. And uh, it's just not right. You should be sitting down. Neither extreme is correct. But the main thing is to avoid a chilol Hashem. 30,000 feet in the air, you can make a kiddush Hashem, or you can make a chilol Hashem. So he goes on and he says, I don't want to belabor the point, but generally the flight crew will be quite accommodating if you speak to them in advance and try to coordinate the best mutual time. What I would like to focus on is the issue of time. It's important for the passenger to be aware of his general location in the world so he can determine when he should be davening. Nowadays, with the built-in flight maps available at your seat, this is relatively easy to do. However, without thinking about it, people can totally miss mincha, or as I once miss, m- witnessed, put on a tefillin three hours before sunrise. So obviously, you've got to be watching all of these things. This is a little bit of a, a look at the article, What Every Kosher Traveler Should Know, by Rabbi David Lewin. And uh, we had another thing. I don't can't do it today. It's too late. make sure that we look at every package because the world has changed. And we looked at the issue of this apple, which was a very interesting one. The Cosmic Crisp gave us an opportunity to think about something new. First thing is, is it kosher? That's the way we really should think. And we should try to bring all of our thinking together when it comes to kosherists. Now, when you see one symbol and another symbol, so two symbols on a package doesn't mean that one was sleeping and one was doing it. It always means that the two are responsible, the two are taking responsibility. But as I mentioned earlier, when it comes to the Ishor HaZabonot of the Rashid of the Eretz Israel, just finding that on the package is not a guarantee that you have a kosher product. Why? Because... They, they can't monitor everything going on in the world, and very often their name is being misused, much more often than even I'm able to report because they only take a small sampling of what's out there in the field, and they def- never get everything. And so it goes on and on and on, and it, it, is, it is what we call a problem. So when you see the Ishur Rabbanut, I advise you, 
to look at the other hashkacha and make sure that the other hashkacha is something that you would be satisfied with. If you wouldn't be satisfied with it, even though the Rabbanut likes to do a good job in guaranteeing that the product for the Isha Rabbanut is a very high level, I know about the details involved, and it's a very demanding, uh, demanding process, and it, they do have a good handle on it, but ultimately they're relying on the Hashkacha agency. Now, why would they be happy with this rabbi in, in Europe that I don't think very much about? And the answer is very simple. The Rabbanuta in Eretz Israel is using some very, very old lists. They use old lists of Hashkachas that have, have been acceptable to them for years and years and years. And that list never gets... Unless you'd have to do... which is a serious level, and in fact, they are not necessarily uh, towing the line. I see our time is up. We'll have to save some of the other ideas for next week. And until next week, this is your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashas Magazine. If you want to reach us during the week, you can still call us at 718-336-8544, or you can use our New Jersey line, 732 534 9363, and uh, you can email us at kashrus, K-A-S-H-R-U-S, at AOL.com. We're now working on the poor issue of the magazine, some very interesting articles that we've prepared for that time, and uh, right afterwards will be Pesach soon. So uh, if, you're, if you're interested in getting our magazine, especially the Pesach issue, and uh, for the summer tr- kosher travel guide, and this year we're producing a kosher supervision guide, in the fall and September. So just give us a ring, and we'll put you on the list. Thank you very much for listening.